Kelly Dalson from the Great White North. What's going on, buddy? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's getting it's getting colder up here. Uh, you know, it, it's I live in a part of Canada that's not deep freeze Canada like most of it, so I can't really complain. Uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Good because we are here to talk about the CFL, Kelly. Something mm-hmm. near and dear to your heart, so to speak. Now, uh, if if the NFL is a ten, right, for your, for for love for you, what would you give CFL on a scale to ten? Uh, these days, uh, it's, it's pretty low, to be honest. Um, I haven't really been super into the CFL and probably uh, getting around a decade. Um, I'll explain later sort of the ups and downs of, of interest for me and for Canadians as a whole. Uh, it'd be like a, a four or five right now, to be honest with you. Okay. All right. All right. Cool. So before we get going, any parting words for the CFL as you eulogize them here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. well, the way it's going these days, the uh, eulogy may be uh, not too far off. But no, this will be a celebration of uh, the greatness of the CFL. Awesome. All right, Kelly, let's get going, buddy. Kelly, give us a little background here on the CFL before we get into the wrestling. Yeah, because I'm assuming most people watching this probably don't know too much about the CFL. Of course, I'm... Uh, native Canadian. So yeah, I'm the perfect person to explain it. The CFL itself is is not that old as far as the league goes. It was formed in 1958, uh, but it was actually a merger then of the uh, East Professional Leagues, which was known as the Big Four, or if you want to get the whole name, the Interprovincial Rugby Football Union, and uh, the West Professional League, which was the WIFU, which stood for Western Interprovincial Football Union. So a very Canadian-sounding name there. Um, So it it had been a long period of evolution to get to that point. Professional leagues in Canada probably started around the same time as uh, professional football leagues in the States. Uh, The game itself evolved around the same time or started to evolve around the same time as uh, football in the States as well. Uh, like 1870s, 1880s was when it first started being like, like you could say this was football. It's, it's, the history is kind of mysterious as it is for, you know, most of the professional sports, the main professional sports these days. It didn't just appear one day out of nowhere. It was a long period of evolution. Um, But it, it seems to have kind of evolved in Canada and the United States at the same time. But, I don't think there was a ton of influence at first. Uh, I do know that a team from Montreal, uh, the University of McGill in Montreal, which is a major Canadian university, did come down to the States around 1875 and played, I want to say in Princeton or Yale. And there was some like swapping of ideas there. And uh, apparently the game, the way the McGill University was playing it at the time did influence uh, the Ivy League schools where uh, football in America uh, first evolved from. So there is an overlap there, but it had already started uh, evolving from rugby before that. So yeah, mysterious uh, origins, but by the 1880s in both Canada and the United States, we started to head towards a recognizable version of football, but it took uh, quite some time still from there. Uh, in Canada, um we have the Grey Cup. That's uh, the big uh, the big game and the championship for the, the for the league for the CFL. But it goes back 
to 1909, uh, the trophy and, and the first Grey Cup game. But the original uh, Grey Cup game was between amateur college teams. And there was no professional teams to speak of at that point. And it was still probably very uh, rugby-like at that time. Uh, as you can see here, the logos over the years, uh, the one on the top uh, left, I, had, I don't think I'd even seen before. Uh, I did some research here. That's the original CFL logo with a maple leaf in it, of course, with a Canadian symbol. Uh, the one in the middle at the top, the 1969 to 2002 one, that's the one I'm most familiar with. That's the one uh, that existed when I first became a fan. That's the one I always think of when I you know, close my eyes and think of the CFL or th CFL logo. I think of that one. But it's apparently it's been gone since 2002. Then the other one on the right uh, only existed for about 10 years. I never really liked that one. Very of its time, I thought. And the one they have currently today is pretty, I don't know, it's it's kind of cold, if you ask me. Uh, could add a little more color to it. Um, maybe it speaks for the the um, how the league has uh, gone in the last uh, 10 or so years, kind of into a, a dark period. Anyway, so back to the Grey Cup. Um, like I said, it, it was first contested in 1909, so almost 50 years before the CFL was formed. Um, so long history, started with amateur teams, slowly got more and more professional teams, and then slowly the uh, amateur teams got squeezed out, uh, and it was ex exclusively professional teams. But like I said at the beginning, there was a professional league in the East, a pro professional league in the West that were technically separate, and they only met uh, for the championship at the end of the year in the Grey Cup. Uh, and then finally in 1958, they merged, and we had the Canadian Football League, the CFL. So, yeah, um, there's another picture that has all the logos of the teams, the current teams, as it is in 2023. And it's up there now. So I'll just quickly uh, explain a few things. The Calgary Stampeders in the top there in the middle, that's my hometown team. That's the jersey I'm wearing today. It's a vintage, like, 2000 jersey, uh, number 18, Alan Pitts, one of the greatest wide receivers in CFL history. Uh, he's basically been retired since around that time, 2000. Um, yeah, uh, so that's my hometown team. The Edmonton Elks, you see at the top, that's a recent development, uh, basically around the same time as the Washington Redskins became the Washington Commanders, or actually they were the F Washington football team at first, but had to switch their name. And then the Cleveland Indians became the Cleveland Guardians around that same time when there was a lot of social awareness protests going on in 2020, the Edmonton Eskimos finally changed their name, which had been controversial for a long time because it was a derogatory name, and they changed it to the Elks. Um, but we're going to be actually talking next episode exclusively about the team that is now the Edmonton Elks, but for, God, I had 70, 80 years, was the Edmonton Eskimos, and they produced a ton of uh, pro wrestling talent over the years. So look forward to that next week. We'll be looking exclusively at, at the Edmonton Elks. This week is just going to be a general look at the CFL um, and different players who played for different teams. Um, as you can see, there's nine teams, and the Grey Cup is coming up this Sunday. Uh, that's why we're doing this a bit early. I wanted to squeeze this one in before the Grey Cup, 
and so is topical. And this year, the Grey Cup is contested between the Winnipeg Blue Bombers and the Montreal Alouettes. And I believe it's the first time those two teams have ever met in a Grey Cup. And that's impressive because both those teams are, are quite old. Um, most of these teams, the BC Lions go back to the 50s, Stampeders to the 40s, Edmonton to at least the 30s, maybe even earlier. Hamilton and Toronto go way back, like early 20th century. Montreal's pretty old. Saskatchewan's pretty old. Winnipeg's quite old. I, I want to say around World War One, 1920s for Winnipeg. And the Ottawa Red Blacks are the newest team, but they are actually the third Ottawa team in CFL history. Uh, the original Ottawa team was the Ottawa Rough Riders. I've talked about this in a previous episode, how there was once two teams in the league. And at one time, there was only eight teams in the league, and there was two teams called the Rough Riders. Uh, but that uh, team, that Ottawa team folded in 1997, I think, 96, 97. Uh, then there was a short-lived Ottawa Renegades from about 2002 to 2005, I think, were the years. And then finally, the Ottawa Red Blacks just from 2014, I believe. And Ottawa is the uh, capital of Canada. So it was always kind of embarrassing when the capital of Canada didn't have um, a CFL team. But this speaks to the up and down fortunes of the CFL over the years. Um, there's been a lot of like boom times, been then a lot of times where teams folded uh, the Montreal Alouettes. This is the second incarnation of them. They originally folded in the 80s. Uh, my beloved Calgary Stampeders almost went out of business in the 80s. Uh, some rough times. There was a boom about 20, 15, 20 years ago, but now we're in another uh, decline period, valley period where attendance is way down and interest in Canada is way down. But we're here to talk about wrestling and that is what we're going to do. Well, we're here to talk about football, but we're here to talk about wrestlers who played football in the CFL. And without further ado, we'll get to that right now. Kelly, the first wrestler we got here is Lex Luger. Tell us a little about, about Lex in the CFL. So the total package, Lex Luger. So uh, just before we get into Lex, I just have one quick little thing to add about uh, the CFL that I missed because I blathered longer than I thought in that intro bit. Uh, just the different rules and, and, and what differentiates the CFL from the NFL. In the CFL, we have three downs instead of four. We have 12 players per side instead of 11. And the size of the field is quite uh, larger than the NFL field. It's uh, from goal line to goal line. It's 110 yards. And then each end zone is 20 yards. So it, And it's way wider, too. Uh, so this helps make the game a lot more uh, offense-friendly. It always was. Um, even like before the NFL had like an offensive revolution, um, the CFL had an offensive revolution. You had Doug Flutie up in the CFL you know, throwing for, I think, 6,000 yards in a season a few times. There was, like, crazy stuff like that. Uh, the the all-time record for passing yards in a game is, is like, 740 or something. That was in the 90s, too, Matt Dunnigan. Anyway, so, yeah, there's differences in rules. Um, so I just wanted to add that. And now on to Lex. So Lex was born Lawrence Wendell Fall. I believe that's how you say it. I believe the P is silent. June 2nd, 1958, 
And he was born actually in Buffalo, New York. He was always billed from being from uh, Chicago for whatever reason. I don't know uh, if he actually lived there when he was a wrestler or what, but he was born and raised in Buffalo um, in uh, Western New York in that area. And he was 6'3 and about 230 pounds. Like I said before on an earlier episode or on earlier episodes, uh, I get the weights basically by taking the wrestler's weight and subtracting about 40 or 50 pounds to estimate their football weight because really I can't find um, info uh, for uh, football weight for uh, any of these guys. So he was uh, an offensive tackle slash guard, another O-lineman, and he originally went to Penn State in 1976. And I don't believe he played at all, so he like redshirted. And I don't think his future looked too bright there because he transferred to Miami, Miami, Florida. But back in those days, and uh, up until fairly recently, I think, you had to sit out a year if you transferred to another school. So he didn't play in 1977, and then he started playing for Miami in 1978. Um, and I believe that's where this picture of Lex is from, is from his Miami Hurricanes days, which didn't last too long. He played five games, or he was on the team for five games. I'm not even sure how if he got into many games. He wasn't a starter, and he was, became very frustrated um, that he wasn't being made a starter, hadn't been made a starter. And when they were in a uh, on the road somewhere, he trashed a hotel hotel room out of frustration because of uh, lack of playing time. And the coach of uh, Miami at the time, I believe, was Lou Saban, immediately kicked Luger off the team. So that was the end of his uh, college career. And he was actually signed by the Montreal Alouettes of the CFL at, you know, a few weeks after he was kicked off the Miami uh, team in 1978, but he didn't play at all in 1978, but he was signed. It was, uh, there was a bit of, um, it was a, no a newsworthy story because he was very young at the time. I think he was only 20 years old and uh, it was unheard of to have a professional uh, that young at that time. So it was newsworthy when he signed with the Alouettes when he was only 20. He did play for them beginning in 1979 for three years, 79, 80, and 81. I'm not sure how much of an impact he made as a player with the Alouettes. Ha didn't find any information in that regard. Um, the Alouettes had been a really good team before that. In the 70s, they were, them and the Edmonton Eskimos were the two best teams. They often met in the Great Cup, and I believe the Alouettes made it to the Great Cup in 1979, but then immediately after that, they went into decline, and eventually that led to um, the franchise folding in the mid-80s, around 86, 87, like I said earlier. So when Luger joined the Alouettes, they were in the decline. Um, after Montreal, he went to the Green Bay Packers, as that picture shows. Uh, very good pitcher, number 66. That was, uh, I believe, Ray Nitsche's number. Uh, that hadn't been retired yet uh, and that Luger got to wear. Um, but unfortunately, his time with the Packers was plagued with injuries. He didn't get into any games, but he was on the team, or at least on the practice squad in 1982 and 1983. So he did make it to the NFL, but didn't get into any games. He was injured most of the time. Then uh, around that time, another professional league uh, debuted the United States Football League, the USFL. They debuted in 1983, and a lot of uh, football players that would become wrestlers found their brief uh, fame and fortune, or neither really, in the <laughs> USFL. Uh, and Lex Luger was one of them. 
He played for three different teams in uh, over two years, 1984-1985. Played for the Tampa Bay Bandits, the Memphis Showboats, and the Jacksonville Bulls. And I have a correction from a few episodes ago when we were talking about Paul Orndorff. I said that Orndorff played for the Jacksonville Bulls of the WFL, but um, I had my teams, my Jacksonville uh, pro teams mixed up. The team that Orndorff played for in the WFL, I believe was the Jacksonville Sharks or maybe even the Jacksonville Express. There was actually two WFL Jacksonville teams to show you how uh, disorganized and chaotic that uh, league was. And the Jacksonville Bulls was the USFL team, not the WFL team. So this picture is from uh, Tampa. I circled him. I wasn't sure. He probably would have stood out even without the circle. Uh, But there he is. He had a beard uh, for most of this period. And then after uh, football, like he was in Florida, he got into wrestling in Florida in 1984, actually. I think originally just as like an out, um, like a kind of like a bodyguard that didn't wrestle. Uh, And then in 1985, he started wrestling. And there, that last picture of him shows how, you know, how different he looked and his physique was much different as a football player. Um, But he was, as a wrestler, he had a meteoric rise. He immediately in in the Florida territory went to the top, went to the main events. He beat Wahoo McDaniel, a man we're going to be talking about in a couple episodes uh, right away. And that cemented Luger as a rising star because McDaniel was a huge star and had been a big star in Florida for a long time. And then after that, it was like a long period, 80s and 90s, where Luger was one of the biggest wrestling stars uh, in the United States, at least. And yeah, I mean, I was never a huge fan of Luger, but we're going to be talking about his wrestling at the end. So I'll save that for then. But that's Lex Luger as a football player. He dabbled, you know, Actually, it was it was a good uh, six, seven years in pro leagues, three different pro leagues, but he never, never really caught on as a, as a regular player anywhere. Kelly, tell us a little bit about superstar Billy Graham. Yeah, the superstar Wayne Coleman. Born June 7th, 1943, and he was born in Phoenix, Arizona. Pretty much lived there his whole life. He was a big man, 6'4", 230 pounds. And in football, he played defensive end. Now, Superstar's football career, I had to kind of stretch here with some of these CFL guys because, you know, just to fill up four slots. Superstar's career in the CFL was uh, was very short. Um, he had an interesting um, uh, path to the CFL or to professional football because he played football in high school, but he didn't go to college. He didn't play college football at all and then was able to go to a professional team. It shows you how different things were back in those days. Uh, he, I believe he had someone that he knew in Arizona hooked him up with the CFL and he went to Calgary, played for the Stampeders in the preseason. This was 1967, and he was traded before the regular season started to the Montreal Alouettes. And there we have Wayne 
Believe it or not, he was only 25 years old, apparently, in that picture. <laughs> oh, shit. He looks 55. Hey, yeah, I know. It, like, it's it's crazy, but that's, you know, how it is. People looked older back then. Um, that's definitely true with uh, with Wayne slash Superstar. So, yeah, only played a couple games at the Montreal Alouettes in 1967. And then he went back to the States and didn't come back to the CFL. But he did try out for the Oakland Raiders in 1968. And that's where this pick is from, number 64 with the Raiders. And he was only with them in the preseason in 1968. And that shows you, again, how different things were. Again, he didn't play college, but he was very close to making the Raiders team in 1968. Apparently, he tore his Achilles in the preseason, and that was it for him as a uh, football player. So it was a very brief um, couple years. You know, he was... Still young, he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. And his connection, though, in Calgary, playing for the Stampeders, kind of, I don't know if it, it got him in with Stu Hart later, but that's where he went to train in 1969. He went back to Calgary. Um, it's kind of funny. I don't think they were really related. He just ended up going to Calgary for football and then two years later going to Calgary for wrestling. And he was trained in the dungeon. And my wife just joined us. Hi. <laughs> and she's not a football fan or a wrestling fan. I was, or a wrestling fan. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah, he went to Calgary, trained in the dungeon, and he actually teamed with a person we're going to be talking about shortly, Angelo Mosca, very early in his uh, his days in Calgary, like within the few we first few weeks as a wrestler. He was a tag team with Angelo Mosca. But after Calgary he went straight to the top almost he became a huge star in the 70s one of the biggest stars i'd say next to the chic as far as heels go he was probably the yeah the second biggest heel star of the 1970s one of the overall top stars in wrestling in the 1970s of course he eventually beat bruno sammartino that's the cover of the wrestler from 1977 and had a 10-month reign as a champion in new york um we talked about him last time, about uh, that run. It's a really good run. A lot of cool matches. We're going to be talking about another one later. And, yeah, he was huge, huge in the 70s. And in the 80s, well, you know, I, I've, I've talked about Kung, Kung Fu, <laughs> Billy Graham enough, I think, uh, in my life. There's not a lot to talk about. And then, unfortunately, when he turned things around um, and went back to the WWF, his health um, betrayed him and he, he wasn't able to wrestle much more, but yeah, a huge star in the seventies. Um, great on the mic, great promo, super influential as Luke, his look influenced so many guys, Hulk Hogan, of course, being the most obvious and yeah, big star. And he just passed away not too long ago, May 17th, 2023 RIP Wayne superstar. We'll miss you. Kelly, flying Brian Pillman. What do we got? What do we got going on with him? Yeah, flying Brian, the loose cannon, um, an amazing pro wrestler, but he was also an amazing football player. So he was born May twenty second, nineteen sixty two, in Cincinnati, Ohio, and his basically yeah his, his listed height and weight as a football player. He was five ten, two hundred and twenty pounds. 
he was on the short side and definitely on the short side for the position he played, but it didn't really uh, stop him from being from excelling at the position. So he was uh, he played defensive tackle, nose tackle, and also linebacker during his time at uh, the University of Miami of Ohio, 1980 to 1983. He was in 1983 a second team All American, so that was a huge accolade and. One note, I saw him listed as a 1982 All-American too, uh, but I couldn't find any uh, secondary sources on that, so I'm not sure. But anyway, 1983 was a huge year, his senior year. He was the second-team All-American, and he was also the MAC Conference Defensive Player of the Year. So, yeah, he he was, you know, had high accolades as a college player, excelled during his senior season. But, like I said, he was a little on the small side or – more than a little, um, but he still was able to make it to the NFL in 1984 with his hometown Cincinnati Bengals. And he played six games with them. There he is. Looks like a practice photo with the Bengals, number 97. And yeah, he wasn't a starter, but he did uh, actually play in the regular season, six games with the Bengals, but he was released after the season. He went to camp with the Buffalo Bills in 1985 and was only on the team there for the preseason before being cut before the regular season started. But he still still uh, clung to dreams of, of uh, football glory. And this is what sent him up north, like it did for quite a few players over the years. And he ended up in Calgary with the Stampeders in 1986. Very fortunate that he went to uh, Calgary, or maybe uh, not so fortunate, depending on your <laughs> point of view of how his life turned out. But fortunate for him for get to get into professional wrestling to go to Calgary, because of course that's where Stu Hart is in the dungeon. So that's uh, that's actually a CFL trading card from 1986 uh, with the Stampeders in uh, uh, quite different uniforms that they have today. Uh, went back to number 41 when he was with the Stampeders. I don't know exactly how much of a contributor he was to the Stampeders. 1986 was definitely a low point in the Stampeders history. I think that was around the time that they were really struggling and almost uh, went belly up. So anyway, he caught on in wrestling and he started uh, in 1986 in Stampede. I can remember I was watching by then. I was watching when he first debuted in Calgary. Um, on Stampede Wrestling, I can remember he the gimmick was at first that he was like straight from football. He would have his teammates. Uh, I think for his first match, he had several teammates in his corner on the outside of the ring from the Stampeders. Uh, and so at first, they really played up his uh, being a football player uh, that has uh, got into wrestling. But it didn't take him long to fully integrate into wrestling. And, and it was almost within a year it was forgotten that he was ever a football player. Uh, because he caught on so uh, quickly, uh, became good so quickly, and was a big star in Stampede for uh, a few years before heading back to the States and then eventually getting into WCW, where he became, uh, where he had his greatest fame as a wrestler. Um, he was So he was a significant star in wrestling in the 80s and 90s. The thing was with him, he, you know, he always wanted to get to the top. He thought he could be a main eventer, but... Most promoters didn't outside of Calgary ever gave him a chance in that regard. 
And, you know, it's been well documented what happened at the end of his life. He died way too young, uh, October 5th, 1997, when he was in the WWF after the car wreck and all that. But he packed a lot into a short life, that's for sure. Um, an excellent college football career and then an excellent uh, pro wrestling career all before the age of 35. Um, yeah, that's Brian Pillman. And his son is in uh, NXT now as Lexus King. Have you seen any pictures yeah. or anything about him? Well, I've seen him like his previous uh, when he was in AEW. I saw a picture of him wearing his, his father's or he was wearing a Bengals jersey with uh, number 97 and, and Pillman. Um, so I saw that somewhere. I don't know if that was recent or. But yeah. yeah. But yeah. Um, the name. I don't know if that's going to do him <laughs> many favors, but whatever at least he's he's uh he's still going we'll see we'll see he lacks a little charisma but we'll see the best of luck to him he has the pedigree yes kelly tell us about angelo mosco my neighbor <laughs> yeah i was gonna ask you um how close you are to where he was born. About um, 45, 45 minutes. He's, he's 45. near Boston. Yeah, yeah. So what a pitcher. What a guy, Angelo Mosca. The main event of this episode, not for his, his wrestling accomplishments, no, no, but for his uh, CFL accomplishments. Because of all the guys we talked about today, he was the most accomplished uh, CFL player, that's for sure. So Angelo was born February 13th, 1937 in waltham is that how you say it waltham waltham okay waltham waltham <laughs> massachusetts and he was a big boy 6'4 240 pounds and yeah defensive tackle and he went to notre dame first which was a big deal well still is a big deal today but was really a big deal back then because he joined them around 1954 when uh, Notre Dame was coming off a long stretch of uh, national championships, Heisman Trophy winners, all that, basically still to this day, like their, you know, biggest glory period. But at Notre Dame, Angelo, young Angelo got into trouble. I think he was uh, doing gambling, other stuff, and he got kicked off the team for that, for the extracurricular activities. Yeah, so he was a bit of a bad boy. And he ended up going all the way from Notre Dame to Wyoming. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, I'm not going to say anything against Wyoming, but that is a bit of a step down in prestige uh, when it comes to college programs. And uh, I couldn't find the exact dates. I had to basically guess based on when he started in the CFL. So I'm, I said, you know, circa 1954 to 1957 was his college career at Notre Dame and Wyoming. He went to the CFL in 1958 and he was actually drafted in the NFL by the Philadelphia Eagles, my beloved Philadelphia Eagles and get this the 30th round. <laughs> that might be us. Yeah. Yeah. New record. Even uh, I can't remember who, who was, was it Orndorff? No, it wasn't Orndorff. Somebody else. Orndorff uh, was late teens. Yeah. I think Vern, Vern Gagne was quite, quite late. Um, but maybe, yeah, anyway, definitely not the 30th round, the 350th overall pick in the 1959 draft. 
But uh, of course, he never, never played for the Eagles, never played in the CFL or never played in the NFL. Sorry. Uh, started in 58, like I said, in the CFL, the year the CFL came into existence um, as an official merged league of East and West. And he was originally with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. That picture there is that's the Hamilton Tiger Cats uniforms, very similar to the Pittsburgh Steelers, which is uh, fitting because. Hamilton is known as the Steel City of Canada. And of course, Pittsburgh's the Steel City in the States. So they share that in common and also the colors of their uniforms. So he started with Hamilton, but he bumped around a bit. He played for Ottawa, the Rough Riders, and then the Montreal Alouettes. Yet again, almost everybody played for the Alouettes. And then he returned to Hamilton, though, in 1962 and would play the last 10, 11 seasons with Hamilton. And this is where... He became one of the great defensive players of all time in the CFL uh, in, the, in the 60s from 62 uh, onward. Hamilton in the 60s was a powerhouse. Them and the Winnipeg Blue Bombers played in the Great Cup almost every year. And Mosca was a big contributor to Hamilton's success. He was a five-time All-Star. And the, great, uh, the Hamilton Tiger Cats won five Great Cups with him on the team. In 1960, 1963, 1965, 1967, and 1972. The final game he played was the 1972 Grey Cup, fittingly in um, his home stadium, our home, our home team stadium, Hamilton. So he got to go out on top, winning the championship before the home crowd in Hamilton in 1972. He had already got, he got into wrestling quite young or quite early, I think 1960. So just a few years after he started pro football in the States, he started, or in uh, Hamilton, he started wrestling in Canada and in Toronto in particular, which was a major uh, hub for wrestling back then. Hamilton is actually very close to Toronto, probably only half an hour away. Uh, It's maybe even less. It's very close. And um, yeah, so he's a big star in Toronto in wrestling, but he wrestled, um, for, or he played football for Hamilton and Toronto and Hamilton are bitter rivals at football. So there he is. That was the last game, 1972, with the Grey Cup. What the Grey Cup used to look like, it's, it's now much larger than that. <laughs> it's, it's, if you've seen it, it's kind of like the Stanley Cup in size. Um, uh, us Canadians, we, we pride ourselves on making these gigantic sports trophies. Uh, so we have the Stanley Cup and the Grey Cup. They're both huge but that was an early uh, incarnation of the Grey Cup there. So, yeah, and then he continued wrestling all through the 70s, well into the 80s. Uh, He was inducted into the CFL Hall of Fame class of 1987. I'm not sure why it took so long, or I'm not sure maybe the Hall of Fame hadn't even been um, organized prior to then. I should have looked that up, but I didn't. But, yeah, enshrined in the Hall of Fame. He's often, you know, talked about to this day as one of the great CFL players, great defensive players in CFL history, uh, maybe the all-time greatest Hamilton Tiger Cat player, very uh, highly regarded. His wrestling career, though, I mean, he was a main eventer. He was big. Um, his, his fame was mostly in Toronto, in Canada. He would go into the States. He did make it to New York for a run with Bob Backlund in 1981 that produced some of Backlund's worst um, (laughs) televised title defenses. Um, 
and and we're going to talk about the match recommendations later we could only come up with one recommendation for Moscow and it was kind of a marginal one at that. I couldn't uh, recommend the Backlund matches because they were not recommended <laughs> matches that you recommend to watch. Um, yeah, but who knows? Maybe if we had some footage of the sixties, early seventies uh, wrestling wise, we may have some uh, good Angela Mosca matches, but we don't anyway. We're here to talk about his football fame. He was one of the great CFL players. And yeah, he eventually, you may have even saw this, Ryan, when he was an elderly man. About 10 years ago, there was a, a reunion thing in the CFL where um, in the 60s, uh, Mosca famously got into a fight with uh, uh, a BC player, a quarterback named Joe Cap, who played in the NFL later with the Minnesota Vikings. And there was a big brawl, I think. And then almost 50 years later, they were at a reunion together and they started fighting. And it's <laughs> two old men. And it was caught on camera. And Mosca, by that time, had a cane. He was pretty decrepit. And he, like, whacked Joe Cap over the head. Cap tried to make a joke. Like, he had a bouquet of flowers that he brought up to Angelo as, like, a joke peace offering. But Mosca just started whacking him with the cane. Um, I don't, maybe there was some mental issues involved, but anyway, that, that, that became like a meme became like a, in Canada. And I think I know, uh, Johnny Sorrow, my podcast, longtime podcast partner was aware of it. So I did uh, get some play in the States because Joe Cap did have some, uh, notoriety in the NFL later on. Like I said, anyway, that was kind of like the lasting, it's kind of fitting though. Cause Moscow was known as a player as being like a bad boy. Kind of like a like a dick buck kiss, rough and tumble guy. So it was kind of fitting. And then being a professional wrestler, that was so much. That was like a took a page right out of a professional wrestling, uh, professional wrestling angle with the flowers and the cane and all that. So it was kind of fitting. That was the last uh, sort of thing that the the public uh, knew about Mosca. He passed away a couple of years ago, I believe. Uh, yes, November sixth, two thousand twenty one. Good long life. And a great CFL player. And I'll salute you for that. Mosca, I won't salute you for your wrestling uh, accomplishments. Rough and tumbling. Some would say that about his announcing, too. Yes, right. You know, I didn't even bring that up. Yes, also not a All-star announcer. wrestling with, uh, with, <laughs> just, ooh, with, who was it with Gorilla? Just, ooh. Uh, Jack Reynolds for one of them. The, it was like, yeah, I think it was, uh, I forget which. Which uh, TV show it was, but it was one of the kind of lower ones, yeah. Yeah, Marble Mouth, they were called. Yes, but you know, hell of a football player. Hell of a football player. All right, Kelly, let's take a quick look at our depth chart here before we get into the matches. So, very offensive and defensive line heavily, especially on the defensive line here. Uh, let's start with superstar at the defensive end. Uh, we're gonna have to work a little bit here with our depth chart. Yeah, should we? Put uh, more recognizable wrestling names opposed to football names here, but we have superstar. Let's move them all the way up here into the depth chart. But do you should we uh, should we take them over Dory Funk? Take them over Vern Yaganya? What, what are you thinking? Looking at this, I'm going to suggest maybe moving Vern to to linebacker uh, because I think he maybe played there. I mean, I I know superstar definitely didn't. I'm, I'm not sure about Dory Funk. So I think we could maybe move because we're getting we need linebackers. So let's move Vern 
over there. I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Um, and then now we have Dory and Superstar doing the edge, uh, getting yeah. sacks. And we'll then move we to the outside linebacker. He's like a, high, yeah. a hybrid. Yeah, I mean this is fluid. We'll, we'll maybe change it later, but yeah, for now let's 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 experiment with Vern at, at linebacker. Perfect. All right, let's go over the defensive tackle while we're on the defensive side of the ball. Um, now, I think we should have this guy be right. If Ron Simmons is our three tech, Pillman's going to be our one, our nose with a shade perhaps, and we're just going to disrupt the line of scrimmage and get right after you right there. And then Angelo will probably be our five tech to the strong side, and we're really rocking and rolling. I think we're going to have a defensive line of three at least guys up front, and then we're going to box them in with our DNs. We might have end up with the bear front with the six man front. So yeah. we'll have to see how we line up. But this is what we're looking at right now with the defensive line of Angelo Mosco, Brian Pillman, and Ron Simmons. I think that is the strength of our team so far on either side of the football, really. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like it's almost complete there with the, with the defensive line. Absolutely. I don't know how many more we're going to add to that. It's it's tough because it seems most of these guys either played O-line or D-line, so we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll, we'll be playing a bare front, like I said, six-down lineman. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's leave, leave, bring Lex Luger all the way to the front. He was probably a better offensive tackle than Bill Watts, even though Luger just <laughs> kind of struggled to get on the field. But we'll go with Luger at the top of our defensive – of our excuse me, of our offensive line here, and we'll move Watts over – to the other side, to the second tackle. So this is how we look depth chart-wise. Kelly, what do you think so far? Well, yeah, we're like my Eagles. We're focused on the the trenches, the O-line and the D-line. And uh, we do have a quarterback, and that, that's probably not going to change. Our backfield is is good. Nagurski and, and Sonnenberg, that's solid. Tight ends we got. You know, we're starting to, to get something going here with the uh, pass catchers. We need some more receivers and we, we definitely have no secondary at all. So that's going to have to be addressed in future episodes somehow. Maybe Stu Hart can play safety. We'll have to figure that out as we go. But like <laughs> I said, I have, I have a wild card that we can throw in the secondary for a pro bowl. For right. a pro bowl and that's kind of hotting in the weeds to give it away a little bit. Okay, cool. Kelly, but that is our depth chart. Let's move over to our match recommendation. All right, Kelly, Luke from the place to be nation. Uh, podcast from the Monday Night Project, Hamburg All-Stars. That might be something you want to check out where he focuses on mm-hmm. the late 70s Hamburg uh, WWF territory there. Oh, in the wow. Memphis Continental cast where he talks straight 80s Memphis. I believe he's in the middle of 1983, perhaps in, into 84 so far. But wow. Luke, uh, from the uh, late 70s, early mid-80s, nostalgia kick, he's your guy. But um, oh. he's across the pond. Not the great white north, but he's across the pound. A lot of international mm-hmm. love here on the no-so on this episode with Canada, mm-hmm. Canada football players, and then now Luke jumping in. So Luke is our is our guest, I guess, recommendator. Yeah, I said that, that works, Kelly. That works. We'll go with that. Mm-hmm. But uh Luke was nice enough to start here with Lex Luger. Luke recommended Lex Luger versus mean Mark Callis. I'm not sure if he was mean yet, but Mark Callis, formerly known or soon to be known as The Undertaker, in a singles match for the NWA World United States Championship on July 7th, 1990, at the Great American Bash in Baltimore, Maryland, in a 12-minute and 10-second match that I went three and a quarter stars. Are you familiar with this match? 
Yeah, I actually, I'd been aware of this match for years, but I don't think I'd ever seen it until this afternoon. I found it on Daily Motion and watched it. Um, of course, because I was aware that um, me and Mark became The Undertaker a few months later. I've seen his like skyscraper matches, but I don't think I'd ever seen this. And it was pretty good. Um, yeah. They did a really good uh, false finish at the end where it was very believable that Luger was going to lose because the referee was knocked down and Paul Lee interfered and hit Luger with the phone. So that was a good, very good near fall. And both guys look fine. Like, of course, um, Mark was, was quite new to the business at this time. And Luger always has this bad rep as being a horrible worker. But um, it, at this point in 1990, he was actually really good. He had um, a lot of good matches, great matches in the late eighties, early nineties. And yeah, I went three and a half stars. I thought this was perfectly fine. Um, I'm glad I finally got to see it. And uh, unlike Sean, Luke did not give us match ratings. Uh, but yeah, I thought it dragged a little bit early, but I, when it picked up, it was good. And I, I believe it was, you know, just the hair under very good to me, but overall pretty good. Three mm-hmm. and four to me. Yeah, it's pretty solid. much the same way. Late. But I think maybe perhaps it dragged for me to start because I watched it right after watching this match right here, which is mm. Lex Luger versus Ric Flair. If Ric Flair is DQ'd, he is loses the world heavyweight title. This is of course, is for the NWA title, the night after Christmas, December 24th, December 26th, 1988, Starcade 1988 and the Norfolk, Virginia 30 minutes in 59 seconds. Kelly, I went four and a quarter. I absolutely love this. This is the favorite match, of course, recommended by you. This is my favorite match that I've watched for this for this uh, series we got going on so far. Yeah. So December 26th, since we're doing a CFL episode, a Canadian episode, uh, December 26th is uh, Boxing Day in Canada. That's a oh. it's a holiday. I think it's also uh, in in the UK as well, but not in not in the states. Um, yeah, I love. I know another weirdo Canadian thing. What can I <laughs> tell you? Metric system, Boxing Day, three downs. You know, we're just weird. Um, I love this match. Yeah, it's 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 great. It's um, one of my favorite Ric Flair matches of all time, and probably my favorite Lex Luger match of all time. It it was one that was like as a kid, I I could only read about it in the mags. I was very interested about Luger's chase that year. And I thought for sure Starcade, he was going to finally win. And I remember getting the magazine and reading about the match and him losing. And I couldn't believe it that he didn't win in the end. But when I finally did get to see this match, I was blown away. It's great. I went four and a half stars. Like I said, it's one of my favorite Flair and Luger matches, like um, individually. And of course they wrestled a million times and had, um, several very good to great matches over the years but yeah this one's a cut above uh yeah i uh, it's exceptional yep and sean key would go on to recommend the wrestle war match between these two afterwards yeah in 1990 he said i need to watch that one where is it actually yeah. better believe it or not because i mentioned to him i'm like wow this luger match is fantastic i hadn't watched this since like the early 10s you know what <laughs> i mean so it's been at least 10 years probably mm-hmm. even 15 for me watching this whenever like the starcade thing came out or whatever mm-hmm. Whatever I don't know. However, I got a. I saw. Yeah, it, it was on a DVD for sure. That's where yeah. I saw. Yeah. Whenever it was, but yeah, it was. Uh, it was really cool, and I love the finish. How uh, Luger could not, or Flair could not cheat, 
or he could not get DQ'd. And I love how Luger's knees collapsed. I think Luger did a really yes. good job with that. And then Flair yeah. very slyly landing very close to the ring ropes, mm -hmm. and catch mm -hmm. the leverage. I just thought it was an excellent match, and it did not yeah. drag whatsoever. They a typical Flair match where it was hot, hot, hot for the 31 minutes. Yeah, yeah, great, great match. Yep, and the second wrestler we have here is Billy Graham. And Billy Graham was recommended for a Dusty Rhodes match. So, of course, Luke mm -hmm. Luke happened to re recommend a different Dusty Rhodes match here. It is a no-DQ match, two out of three falls in a brass knuck championship mm -hmm. match, January 4th, 1980, from Houston, Texas. Houston wrestling, so to speak. 13, 16 minutes and 13 seconds. I gave three stars. Uh, two out of three falls. It uh, it was cool. The layout was a little weird, but overall the violence <laughs> was great. The, 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 the violence was great at times, but it, it, it's super dragged at times. But I thought there was just enough heat and not just enough excitement to kind of find a middle ground of three stars for it. Yeah, I mean, now we've uh, had back-to-back -back episodes with uh, Dusty versus Superstar matches. Last time it was a recommendation for Dusty, of course, this time for Billy Graham. And last time it was in Madison Square Garden. This is uh, Sam Houston Coliseum in yeah. Houston. I'd never seen this match before. I, I was aware of it. This is getting late in the uh, Superstar uh, days before he uh, vanished and came back as Kung Fu Billy Graham. He's definitely got less hair than he did in like 1977, uh, 78. And yeah, it was because the same night they were going to have, a, I'm assuming, a two ring battle royal. So you got two oh, rings yeah. and it, it's it's really filmed weird where it looks like the ropes, there's like six ropes, seven or eight ropes or whatever. Um, and Paul Bosch on commentary. And I, I don't know. I've never been a huge fan of Bosch on commentary. He just seems like he has to talk nonstop. And, and sometimes he's just blathering on about nothing because uh, he just feels like he can't stop talking for whatever reason. That's always been my opinion of Paul Bosch. But as far as the match goes, I went three and a half, but I think I don't do quarters, but I think this definitely one, I think I may have to start using them because, yeah, three and a half seems too high. You went with three. I would give it a bit more than um, three. Uh, we'll stick with three and a half. I don't want to start monkeying around with my star ratings at this point. Well, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it was similar to the uh, Texas death match in New York. Cause the rope was also used uh, dusty bled, but yeah, it was, it was slower. Um, another cool thing. This, like you said, it was a brass knucks title match. There's not too many of those on tape. Uh, that was a title that was pretty much like a, uh, it probably started, who knows, like way back, 40s maybe even, 40s, 50s, and it was still going into the 80s. Uh, Texas had the Brass Knucks title, I think multiple Texas promotions, and Florida was another territory that used the Brass Knucks title. Basically, it was a, a hardcore title before the hardcore title, mm -hmm. where every match uh, contested for the Brass Knucks title was a no-DQ match. So basically, this was like the, the Texas death match that they did in New York a few years earlier. But yeah, it was just, yeah, you're right. It was, same uh, rope spot, you know, yeah. Yeah. Same rope spot, but it just, the, the, the crowd wasn't as heated. Um, it just didn't, didn't hit that next gear. Like the Texas death match in New York in 77 yeah, did. It just felt like we got like a 55 minute Billy Graham rest hold leading into the first fall. Right. Like, uh, we're only seven minutes in. They get the first fall. 
and literally 75% of that seven minutes were just a rest hall show. And it just, it just felt lazy and it felt weird. It, it felt like weird and like going through the motions to kind of get to the heat. But once they got to the heat, it was cool. It was good. You know, tip like we did to the garden. I prefer the garden match over this, but it was still kind of cool to go watch them back, go back and see it, you know, a few years after that. Yeah. It was at this point, uh, Graham, like he admits in his biography that he had kind of checked out on wrestling and was depressed after his run in New York. So we're not seeing him at his best here. And the finish was screwy. You get a double count out yeah. in a, in a no DQ match. That is never good. Um, but anyway, and it's weird because you have pinfalls in the match. It's not like they were protecting somebody from doing jobs really. Cause Dusty took a pinfall uh, superstar yeah, to pin, of course. Anyway, we've talked enough about this match. Um, it's, 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 it's good, but yeah, it's not great. That's for sure. Yeah. All right. So then your recommendation for a superstar was Billy Graham versus Bob Backlund in a Sicilian stretch match, not a regular stretch match, but a Sicilian <laughs> stretch match for the WWF championship on September 16th, 1978, Philadelphia Spectrums, 18 minutes and 28 seconds, four stars. It was great. I loved it. It was the crowd was electric. Kelly, I texted you and said, are yes. they typing in these crowd noise? Because this is no. fucking hot off the jump. I, mm-hmm. I actually liked, actually, no, fuck that. I love the false finishes with the stretcher job. This little Hammenager mash, mash wishes they had. This <laughs> like, it was like movie prop stretcher. Like, it was, <laughs> yeah. it was brutal. Like, it barely fit one of one of uh, Superstar's legs, really. He was struggling. It looked like they had 150-pound referees trying to carry him out of this. Uh, <laughs> so the, the crux of this is they you had to beat your opponent all the way to a pulp, and then the referees would come and put him on a stretcher, and once the referee would carry him, two referees would try to carry this Hammenager <laughs> stretcher out of the ring and dump him out of the ring, and that's how you were victorious in this match. But I thought it was great despite the wonkiness, but I like I endured the wonkiness of it. It was brutal. Typical Backlund. Backlund was great. Graham just as great here, by the way. Um, I just loved it. It was great. Four stars for me. Yeah, yeah, I loved this one too. I, I don't think I'd seen it until um a few months ago. We watched it for Mystery Titan Theater when we did the Billy Graham tribute show. Um oh. yeah, I, I'm surprised I it was I, I missed out on this one for so many years because I love both guys i love this era it's yeah a sicilian stretcher match it was a gimmick used in in new york at this time bruno of course uh when he was on top it would be used for him a lot that was where the sicilian part came from um (laughs) i guess and but yeah this one's great using the stretcher as a weapon the crowd like you said nuclear hot and yeah it was just an all-out brawl between the two guys uh, the best match, I think, that's on tape between Graham and Backlund uh, easily. I went four and a half stars. A, I thought, yeah, it's got to – I love this era, just like Luke. And, you know, if you know me, I've talked about this era so much over the years on podcasts. I, I love um, WWWF era wrestling, late 70s, early 80s. And, and the Spectrum and Philly is always near and dear to my heart. So, yeah, this is a great match. Everybody – should see it. it it's it's a timeless match anybody who loves wrestling today and is unfamiliar with uh the 70s would would i think enjoy this match just as much as a modern match because it's it's just crazy good yeah very cool all right next guy we have here is 
Brian Pillman. Uh, Luke recommended Brian Pillman versus Lex Luger in a singles match for the NWA World United States Championship from October 28th, 1989. Halloween Havoc, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Again, 16 minutes, 49 seconds. I went three and three quarter stars. I thought it was very great, uh, very good, close to great. I thought it was very good. I just felt that it was just in fourth in a half gear when it potentially could have got there. Um, I'm not sure why it didn't necessarily get to the floor for me, but I just went with my gut at three and three quarter stars, but I thought it was excellent. Both guys had really good stretches. I love the hope stops from flying Brian and I love the power moves from, um, from Luger and Pillman's great in the, you know, in the receiving role of that. Yeah. Yeah. This is a great match. Um, one of Luger's best. Uh, it's a great example of him as a heel. Like really, yeah. as he was just a great cocky heel at this time. And Pillman had just, joined WCW in the summer, I believe. So he was quite new. This is also in Philadelphia. This is at the Civic Center, uh, which mm -hmm. was a notorious arena. It's where the NWA held shows for many years uh, in the 80s. And they were known uh, for having a rough crowd. You can see the future uh, ECW fans, front row fans in the crowd that night, like Hat Guy and, all, and those guys are cool. in the crowd. So it has that kind of vibe to it. Very hot crowd. It was an undercard match, so they weren't going to upstage the main event. Although yeah. I think this is probably the best match on the show because the main event wasn't really that steel, great. The weird cage. Yeah, the first Thunder Cage uh, with Bruno actually as the referee. And yeah. it was, I've, I think I've only seen it once and I wasn't Terry too impressed. And, Terry and Flair. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Funk and Muda against Sting and Flair, which yeah. was such a hot feud all year prior to that. But yeah, they, they went to... They got too cute with the gimmicks uh, for the for the for the match. But anyway, yeah, this match is good. I haven't seen it in a while. I put four stars on it. I remember it being, yeah, when I saw it for the first time, like I was really impressed. I was like, wow, um, like the crowd's hot. Brian is super over as a as the challenger, and and Luger's great as a heel, like I said. So yeah, I, I'm I'm fine giving it four. Um, I didn't rewatch it uh, recently, so maybe. It, um, that's a bit high, but anyway, I'll stick by four. No, no problem. So, and Kelly, your recommendation for Brian Pillman was Brian Pillman versus Jason the Terrible in a singles match in a 45 minute time limit for no title <laughs> on title. No, August 7th, 1987, Stampede Wrestling from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And it was, I wrote 12 ish minutes because as soon as we as if anyone wants to watch along on this match, about a few seconds in, they were like, "This they are five minutes into this match." So I yeah. added the gentleman five here, and I went twelve and a half ish minutes. You had a smudge finish where uh, Jason the Terrible kind of just started beating up on Pillman. Pillman throughout the match was on the chase. Jason the Terrible a little a little slow, but you could see like the, the Pillman's greatness here with the selling and the and the comebacks and the fire and everything. And uh, what was it? I watched this one early in my rewatch. So what was it? A count out or they just had a disqualification or a double disqualification. Yeah. And kind of the whole locker room came out and ripped mm -hmm. everyone apart. And all I know is that Terrible had a, a Jason-like mask on. So you couldn't really mm -hmm. hit him in the face. <laughs> that was the gimmick of the match. Yeah. Well, with doing Brian Pillman this episode, I, I, I kind of had to get, squeeze in a stampede wrestling match since we're talking about Canada. Got to talk it about was good. I gave you three stars. Yeah. Yeah. I went three stars as well. I was kind of unsure. I put a question mark. I was, I thought we saw enough that it was more than an NA, more than a not applicable. Um, yeah. We missed, yeah, the first few minutes. This was a typical, um, if you know anything about Stampede Wrestling and their TV, 
The matches were almost always clipped. They would almost always be joined in progress. Sometimes you'd get a match where it's like, this has been going on for 56 minutes. <laughs> and we'd get the last three or four minutes before the draw. Um, that wasn't unusual. Uh, so, But this one, we got most of the match. Uh, I don't know why they didn't show the whole thing. Cause really they, yeah, it was just the first couple minutes. Cause often they would cut away also, um, and, and you wouldn't get the finish, which would be frustrating. Uh, but we have blood in this one. As soon as we, uh, the footage kicks in, Pillman's already busted open. This was, uh, this was when I was a young fan watching. I started watching about a year before this and Jason, the terrible, I was a huge fan. My friends and I we were a huge fan of Friday the 13th movies so it was pretty cool having this character come into our home promotion um he was booked as totally unstoppable he, I, I had to look up the um the dates and all that he'd only been wrestling in calgary i think for about a month uh jason the terrible before this but he destroyed everybody um the match i remember between these two was i, I believe it's the next week they have a rematch and it ends i have this memory of pillman speaking of stretchers pillman being stretchered out after uh, an, uh, like a terrible beatdown by Jason the Terrible, and um, eventually Bruce Hart, uh, who was Brian Pillman's tag team partner, they were actually the tag team champions at, of Stampede at this time. Bruce Hart would come in after Pillman was hurt and then feud with Jason the Terrible. I very you know I have a clear memory of that. I couldn't find that match on YouTube, so this was I believe the week before that. Um, yeah, this one was yeah it was uh, it was it was cool. Uh, Jason, it was. You know, he had the mask. I don't know how, how they explained why this was legal, but it always was uh, that he could wear it. Uh, we got a big uh, dive from, from the ring to the outside by Pillman. That was, you know, way ahead of its time mm -hmm. uh, for the era. And you got it. Yeah, it was uh, uh, the the ref got, kept getting knocked down at the end. So it was basically and the ref, by the way, was Wayne Hart, the, uh, the, the Hart brother who was just a referee. And occasionally he would wrestle. Um, and work a, a kung fu gimmick, uh, coincidentally, uh, when he wrestled, but uh, was mostly a referee. And the, he was knocked down, and then the wrestlers spilled out and and broke it up. And he had the Zodiac. That was um, Jason's. Uh, he had two managers, um, although the the one manager, Judah, oh, what was his name? Anyway, I don't think he would uh, remain as Jason's manager for for that for too much longer after this. Because I just remember the Zodiac, the one in the black hood and all that, who was Barry O, um, oh, really? Randy Orton's uncle. Yeah. Under a Barry o in the yeah. 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 Um, so he was the Zodiac and they would do these crazy promos where Zodiac would do all the talking and he would reference a person called Luke. Uh, funny enough, Luke is, is recommending <laughs> matches, but he'd always reference this Luke person that was never seen, kind of like uh, Sister Abigail for bray wyatt or something um and they had like a psychedelic background in space with stars and stuff um and eventually yeah like the zodiac in the match uses his mystical powers to uh tame uh jason and calm him down at the end of the match but in, i could talk about this stuff for hours uh, but anyway yeah this was a nice little slice of uh pillman in calgary to show you this was only this was less than a year uh, after his debut and he was already really good. Yeah. And, and, and yeah. So yeah, I went three stars. Even if we had um, the whole match, I don't know if you'd go much more than that. So yeah, that's, that's pace about right. Pace. Like it was, a, it, yeah. it was good. It was good. Um, 
Uh, yeah. Maybe Jason and Terrible ca catching him without really on the first viewing, not really knowing the depths of the character or the background. <laughs> I was just like, oh, what are we doing here, Kelly? But I got, <laughs> I, I got into Jason the Terrible for a bit and I did laugh, but it was going to, you know, a 45 minute time limit. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they ain't <laughs> so it was pretty cool. But happened, believe it or not, you and Luke happened to recommend the same <laughs> Angelo Moscow match. And that is against the Iron Sheik known as at the time Hussein uh Assad Arab no uh, Arab? Hussein Arab all right I, I botched that but you picked me up a little bit there we'll go Shiki okay. baby and a steel cage match for the it was it the NWA Canadian World Heavyweight Championship or was it just the Canadian World Heavyweight Championship I, it was probably yeah referred to as both uh Toronto definitely was affiliated with the NWA so yeah, yeah. that wouldn't be unusual so it was December 28th, 1980 for Maple Leaf Wrestling in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. 16 minutes, five seconds. I went two and three quarter stars. Um, originally, I went star and a quarter. I don't know. I wrote down two and three quarters. I just so used to going like a star and a quarter above the, you know, the, the replacement level here of three stars, but I had it a tick under three. I thought it was good at times, but it was just so boring for a steel cage match and uh yeah. if this is angelo's best one god bless him <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i didn't um we just watched this one not too long ago in mystery titans theater as well for um iron sheik's uh tribute episode that was hot i'll give him that yeah you know, boy yeah uh, yeah well maple leaf gardens in toronto was you know one of the all-time great wrestling arenas um back in the day similar to a msg a philly a boston garden same type of crowd hardcore fans and uh rabid fans and uh chic this was you know the year of the iran hostage crisis so he had a lot of heat uh -huh. yep. at this time even in canada and uh, mosca like i said earlier was a big star in toronto 60s and 70s he was definitely getting long in the tooth here as a wrestler but yeah, and no, yeah, you're right. It, it's, you know, not a great match at all. I'm going to go two and a half. I can't give it three, um, which is saying something. Um, because, yeah, it's just, yeah, it, it's it's forgettable. It's, Mosca just wasn't capable of much. He's cool. not well, a good baby face. Coming out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was over. Baby face over. He was over. It's just. Yeah. At the end of the day, he's probably a tag wrestler, but he's a big star, so I get it. Well, he's, is... he's like one of those guys, like Big Daddy in England was super over, but his matches mm -hmm. were horrible. Mosca wasn't, you know, as over as Big Daddy, um, and his matches were probably better than Big Daddy. But anyway, yeah, I, I like I said earlier, I couldn't recommend those backland matches because they're actually probably worse than this, believe it or not, or on the same level. Anyway, it's fine. We didn't have to watch two. Angela Moscow matches. Hey, I thought it was ourselves. a happy coincidence, Kelly. Lucky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, maybe I did that on purpose. I didn't want to watch another one. <laughs> cool. But again, thank you to Luke for recommendations for here. Kelly, yeah. as we get out of here, how are you feeling going into the bye week on the Eagles? Ah, uh, good. Um, you yeah, mean they have a few, you know, issues with their uh, pass defense. That's for sure. They're playing the Chiefs on Monday night. Huge mm -hmm. game. Coming out of the bye week. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, both of them are coming out of the bye. Yep. It'll be interesting. I I don't I don't see why they can't win this game. They've never beaten 
the Chiefs with Andy Reid as the coach, which sucks because, of course, Reid was the Eagles coach for a long time. But, yeah, they've never beaten them. So it'd be nice to finally end that streak. It would have been nice to have ended it in the Super Bowl last year, but whatever. <laughs> Here we are. Um, ahead, they got Buffalo. Buffalo's struggling. Mm-hmm. The Niners. Cowboys who knows? Again. That's going to be a dogfight. Cowboys again. And then a, a game in Seattle. They haven't beaten the Seahawks in 15 years. Uh, Seattle, that should, you know, that's a winnable game. And then they have three layups basically in, on paper anyway, to end the season with uh, the Giants, Cardinals, and then Giants <laughs> the last three games. So hopefully that'll uh, give them um, what they need to uh, secure the number one seed because that's really what uh, matters is to get that uh, bye in the playoffs. You guys go three and two in this five game stretch, you're probably going to be okay with three yeah. losses. You know, Niners yeah. already, the Niners already have their three losses. I doubt they went out. You know what I mean? So yeah, you keep the Niners yeah. there, you're in, you're in great rock and roll in shape. The West coast coming to the East coast and the playoffs, you're in a, you're in a really, really good shape. Uh, just win three out of two, at mm-hmm. least win two out of three. And I still think you're in pretty good shape if you beat the Niners. So I think you're, I think you're good, buddy. You know, I think you guys are, I think you're good. And then Seattle already has their four or five losses. Even if you have a hiccup against them, they're a wild card team, anyways. Um, mm-hmm. Cowboys, I, you guys are just better. You're better at the quarterback position. You're better up front, and at the end of the day, you, you you're going to be looking at fucking that. Look when you're when you look at down the end of the barrel, it's going to be fucking McCarthy looking at you. So I think you're okay there. You know, mm-hmm. one wild card team though I do like is uh, the resurging Minnesota Vikings, but they don't have enough depth. Just but. I don't know if they're going to even get past the Lions, man. That that offense, and they have just the swagger, the coach. Mm-hmm. They got the line that can that can maybe slow you guys down up front. A Lions is a team that I'd be a little bit worried about too. But I, you know they're so so new to this playoff game that I think even <laughs> if you had to go there, that you'd be kind of a okay. And it's indoors, you know, con- climate control, all that stuff. I I think you guys are probably still the favorite in the West. And in the, in the, not in the West, in the, uh, this is in the NBA, buddy. In the yeah. NFC, you guys are probably still the favorite. In the AFC, it's not the Patriots. We'll start there. <laughs> uh, let's just soar to that top three pick. Drake May, Caleb Williams, Marvin, Marvin Harris. I think we're in great yeah. shape regardless there. Uh, let's just rock and roll with that. I'm, we'll end it there. And I really like the, the Ravens despite – the hiccups they always seem to have, let-ups in the fourth quarter on all of their losses. Well, you know, you lose to the Bear, the Browns when you're leading for virtually yeah. the whole game, scoring early, and then you mm-hmm. lose the last second field goal to the Browns. Um, it seems like they need to tighten up a few bolts in Baltimore, but I would be very easily looking at a Baltimore-Philly Super Bowl, I think. And I thought that I think that's a pretty cool matchup. Battle of the Battle of the Birds. Yep. Uh, yeah, that would be cool. Um, that's my that's my mid-season report. That's your I just don't think the Chiefs have the pie of power. Left says Taylor Swift can sing them to it. By the way, are you nervous? The news comes out today. Taylor Swift's going to be in the building on Monday Night Football. Does that I, make you a little more nervous? Well, isn't she an Eagles fan? Or was? That's where that's where it comes down to. Yeah. Hmm. So maybe it's a good luck uh, charm for the Eagles. Let's hope so. <laughs> All right, Kelly. That's where we're at halfway through the season. And that's the end of this episode. Anything you want to say as we get out of here, pal? Uh, just quickly, I'll do my um, references. Yeah. I forgot to do that earlier. A wrestling data, Superstar Graham's biography, which is really good. Tangled Ropes, 
mm-hmm. the heels from ECW Press, as usual. Uh, Pain and Passion by Heath McCoy, which is a history of Stampede Wrestling, one of the best uh, territory history books out there. Highly recommended. College and Pro Football Reference, as usual. HurricaneWarriors.com for info on um, Lawrence Fall, a.k.a. Lex Luger's uh, time with the Miami Hurricanes, and Wikipedia. Awesome, Kelly. Uh, Great job, as usual. What do we got coming up next episode? So next episode, we are staying north of the border. And like we did with West West Texas State, we're going to focus just on one team because this team, as much as I hate to admit it, because they're the longtime rivals of the Calgary Stampeders, the Edmonton Eskimos, now Edmonton Elks, But for uh, the longest time, like I said at the beginning, they were the Edmonton Eskimos. And when all these players that went on to be pro wrestlers played for them, they were the Edmonton Eskimos, including Roman Reigns, who played for them in 2008, I want to say. So we're going to be looking at guys as far back as Stu Hart in the 30s and Roman Reigns in 2008. So yeah, next episode will be entirely on the Edmonton Eskimos and the football or the wrestling talent they produced over the decades but I'll be wearing this jersey again next week uh, just to make sure that uh, I represent my beloved Stampeders against uh, the hated Edmonton team. Awesome. All right, Kelly, that's it for this episode, and we'll see you next episode, pal. Go Birds, right? See you guys. Go Birds. (laughs)